You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's a guest speaker, we have Sun Cho, general partner at D20 Capital. And this episode, we'll talk about cross-border investing, when can a U.S.-based company expect to go global, and how U.S.-based companies can leverage partnerships with cross-border investors in the U.S. So, Sun, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on D20 Capital. Sure, yeah, so I'll start with D20. So D20 is a new venture fund uh, based here in the Bay Area. Um, it's solely backed by Doosan, which is a large Korean conglomerate um, with broad operations in the industrial sectors. Um, <clears throat> we set up shop last year and started investing this year. Uh, we led a Series A in a Bay Area construction tech startup um, and have invested in a few other unannounced rounds ranging from C to Series B. Um, as for my background, I'm an engineer by training, studied electrical engineering, um, and then was a product manager at Samsung. Uh, so we built processors for the first iPhones and smart, Samsung uh, Galaxy smartphones back in the day when like, um, you know, there was, there was like serious debates on whether uh, people would be watching video on their smartphones. <laughs> so that was, a, that was a real thing. The execs were like, why would we watch video when you can watch it on your laptop or your TV? Uh, <laughs> nice days. How, how times have changed. And so I spent a few years there and then worked a couple of years in the Samsung family office. And then I shifted gears a little bit, came back to the U.S., um, went to business school at Columbia in New York. Um, I did a couple of years of consulting at McKinsey. Uh, and then I moved over to the Bay Area in 2015 to join Venture. So Formation 8 uh, was the first fund that I joined, and then AmAsia, um, and now D20. So it's kind of been a mix of large and small institutional funds, as, and, and now also a corporate-backed fund. So it's kind of, I've run kind of a gamut on, on you know, different kinds of uh, venture funds. That's real cool. Really nice background. I know just thinking that there were times when people were not sure if people will watch video on their phones. It's insane for me. I'm too young for that stuff. Uh, but let's talk more about D20. So uh, you mentioned that you've invested in one construction tech and a couple unannounced rounds. Generally, what do you invest in? Are there any specific fields that you are looking for or uh, uh, some specific uh, rounds that you usually invest in? So seed plus or is it pre-seed as well? Yeah, so in terms of sectors, um, we're a generalist firm, so there's no like sector mandate. Um, one sector that we have gone deep in is in you know the industrials uh, sectors that are adjacent to what our parent company operates in, uh, so like construction and manufacturing. Um, we are you know very bullish on <clears throat> many other sectors in in kind of tech world, and we as as probably with you know, all other investors in the industry, we've been spending a lot of time and energy thinking through what are the implications of COVID um, on other sectors and kind of spending time in sectors like uh, education and fintech. In terms of stage, um, we're, we're really flexible actually, but then I'd say kind of sweet spot is around the series A when there's some metrics. Um, and then, uh, you know, we've done, we've committed to a C deal as well as a series B deal. So that's probably kind of the range right there. 
All right. All right. Nice. Uh, so let's talk about deal sourcing. That's the question that I generally ask all my investor speakers. So you're not an exception. How do you source your deals? Where do you find those investments that you make finally? Yeah. So for sourcing, um, it's interesting, right? Because I've been at kind of the like a brand name, which actually that firm no longer exists. But um, and I've also been at like a small firm and now like a brand new firm. Uh, so. It really depends on um, what kind of firm you're at, right? So, you know, kind of the brand name firms, I'd say uh, the vast majority of deals are just kind of, kind of flow in, so it's inbound. Um, for newer firms like us, we have to be much more proactive, right? So um, our sourcing is, there's kind of, I'd say like three vectors. So one is uh, inbound. There's still, you know, deals that are introduced to us from other entrepreneurs in the industry that I that we know or other VCs. Um, so that's one. The second one is uh, you know syndicating with um, other VCs. So talking to friends in the industry, just asking what they're working on or if we have a thesis. You know, finding investors that have invested a lot in a certain space and saying, "Hey, we're really excited about this space. Um, what what companies have you seen that are exciting or fund, fundraising right now or or coming up?" And then the third one, um, my previous firm does this, this, this a lot, but is outbound sourcing, right? So you dive deep on a certain sector, <clears throat> kind of create a market map, figure out which companies are interesting and whether you, you can kind of guess like roughly when they'll be fundraising and then you reach out um, and kind of start the relationship. And when they are fundraising, um, because you spend a lot of time thinking about that sector, Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes they'll they'll reach out and say, "Hey, you know, we did cover fundraising." So it's kind of three three vectors. Nice. I really so sometimes. Um, let's talk about the third one a little bit in depth. So that's another question that I personally get a lot. So like, founders ask me, "How do I get my company out there so that you know investors who do some outbound as well will notice my company specifically?" So. What are the sources that you find those companies that you actually reach out to? Are those some articles on Crunchbase? Is it uh, Crunchbase itself based on some metrics or where do you find those companies that you reach out to? Yeah, so I think there's um, there's there's multiple ways, right? So one is let's just take um, construction tech, for example. So there's several kind of industry um, you know, conferences or industry, uh, you know, like research organizations. So in, in construction, there's something called built worlds. Um, and a lot of folks from the industry, as well as investors, as well as startups are involved. And so, you know, like those kinds of uh, forums are great ways to get your name out there. <clears throat> and then also, um, I think some level of PR, and this is something that I thought a lot about over the years, um, how important is PR? And I think you obviously don't want to spend too much time and, and frankly too much money on it. Uh, but I think to a certain extent, when there's, uh, there's an opportunity to really kind of showcase something that you've built or like a major customer relationship that you've signed. Uh, and sometimes customers are really willing to, um, you know, step up the bat on that as well because they want to show that they're kind of on the cutting edge. Um, so I think I think it's just really spending a lot of not a lot, but like spending a good amount of energy on figuring out how to get your name out there, so that when somebody is uh, googling for you know um, construction payments, for example, uh, your name pops up, or when 
when I'm speaking to other um, industry experts, they say, oh, there's you know, company A, B, and C that are playing in the sector, and, and we've seen some great things. Nice. Yeah, that's great advice. I'm personally still, you know, I've spoken to multiple investors and founders, and no one really gave me a good answer on how to do PR. So hopefully one day I'll have an episode where a person will be able to say A, B, and C in PR will give you XYZ in funding, <laughs> but didn't happen yet. So let's go back into your um, earlier description of D20. You said that it's fully funded by a conglomerates. And my question is, is it basically corporate venture capital or is it a family office or is it like a actual venture capital? Yeah. So I'd say it probably um, is closest to, you know, just a corporate, I mean, it is a corporate venture arm, right? So we are solely backed by a corporate, which makes us a corporate venture arm. Um, I guess the way we're a little bit different is that we're structured as an institutional VC in the sense that we have, um, you know, an independent fund, the decision is made, made independently um, and there's no strategic angle, right? So we don't have to go back to, um, you know, our corporate backers and say, hey, we found this company, do you approve? Um, and we also don't have to say like, you know, this company operates in construction, so we're only looking for construction tech companies, right? So. We're very independent, uh, much like the other institutional VC funds I've been at. Um, just the difference is that we have one backer, which is a large company. That's really cool that you're like combining both good stuff from both worlds. So nice work there. Uh, my next question would be about uh, differences between CVC and actual institutional investors in terms of the value proposition that those two have. So can you name the major value proposition that's let's say D20 specifically has versus some other uh, venture capitals that you see, or maybe even family offices? Sure. So in terms of value proposition, I think with CBCs, it's quite clear, right? So there's access to the parent company, um, hopefully customer and partnership opportunities, uh, but the downsides are certainly there too, right? So sometimes um, some CBCs, it's not as common anymore, but we'll ask for like very strategic terms like, work with our competitors, et cetera. Um, and another potential potential downside is, is this is definitely not always the case, but is some signaling risk, right? So if you have a CVC leading around or um, that's priced around, sometimes, you know, follow-on investors might say uh, or might think that that investor was not that sensitive on price, so did not optimize for price. Um, so it was kind of pros and cons, right? For institutional investors, I think uh, it's less clear of what the value proposition is. Um, so I think it really comes, I mean, you know, you hear, uh, like everybody says um, their value add and, and uh, everybody will have some level of some angle. Uh, but I think it really comes down to like the specific investor, right? So um, you just have to do diligence on was this investor really helpful? Were they really vested? Uh, in terms of their time and energy, uh, were they, you know, pleasant to work with, right? Because if you partner with an investor, you're you're kind of partnering with <laughs> partnering with that person for ten years, right? Right. Um, for brand name firms, I think there's, you know, certainly positive signaling, right? So whether it's hiring or whether it's for follow-on rounds or syndicating rounds, um, if Sequoia invested, then everybody's like, how how can I do this? <laughs> right. So. Um, 
brand, brand name firms will certainly have that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you can get Sequoia investment, even if you don't need that investment, I would personally get that for sure. Like no questions asked, uh, but it's always up to you. So uh, figure it out how to get that, that touch with Sequoia. But let's talk about who should go out and actually specifically target to, I mean, specifically target CVCs versus venture capital. So uh, who should actually reach out to corporate venture capitals versus venture capitals themselves? Yeah, sure. So I think, I think every fundraise, it should kind of be structured as a well-organized process, um, almost like an enterprise sales process. You should have both institutional and corporate VC to begin with, right? So, um, and on the, on kind of the CVC front, um, you know, try to figure out which CVCs would be the best fit. Um, not only from like the parent level or actually more from like the CVC level, right? So, um, there might be a CVC of a you know large corporation that at, at a high level is such a great fit to your business, but does that CVC actually have close ties with, with the parent and will they actually be able to help? Um, and so, so I think you kind of have to do that research, um, have you know a broader list of both institutional and CVC. And then if you do have the luxury to prioritize allocations and you can do that down the road. Um, so, I mean, kind of a more direct way to answer your question is like, I don't think, um, I don't think there's really a case where you say, I'm only gonna do, you know, raise capital from, you know, quote unquote strategics or only gonna raise from institutional. I think you have to start the process with, with kind of the broader spectrum and then, mm -hmm. um, and then prioritize when you can. Right, absolutely. That's great advice and you know you just narrow down your target as long i mean down the way once you see who's interested and who's not that interested uh, but let's talk about our main topic for this episode which is cross-border investing so uh you so d12 is connected to asian markets right uh yeah so so our our um, backer corporate backer is a korean company uh, with most operations in asia this is a global mm -hmm. company but stronger in asia so that's you know you could, you could put it that way for sure so does it question is does it make sense for a u.s based company let's say they want to probably they don't even need to raise more money but they want to go let's say to asian markets does it make sense for them to go out and reach out to those cross-border investing working with specifically with asian markets so so in the case where the company has no interest in uh in, in going to asia at some point no, 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 there is specifically there is like, let's say my company is very much interested in going to Asia uh, like as soon as possible, but we don't might not even need capital as much. But, you know, I know that there is, let's say I know that you are well connected to Asian markets. Should I go out and, you know, try to get some sort of. I see. No, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think you need to elaborately go out and fundraise just to develop those relationships. Um, and, and I mean. If you don't need the capital right now, then um, I think you can develop the relationships without raising capital from those investors, right? So we're more than happy to develop relationships with entrepreneurs and actually prefer it, right? So that um, potentially, like, without needing to inject capital at this time, we can kind of use this process of partnering um, as, as part of our diligence, right? Um, if if you know whether it's it's 
our corporate backer or it's other industrialist companies or other, you know, just broader companies that we know, um, start working with the startup and really like them, then it's much easier to get conviction to invest down the road. And so I definitely don't think that you need a fundraise just for that reason. Um, but obviously if you, if you need that extra capital to go to a new market, then um, those kinds of investors can be higher on that priority list. Right, right. Yeah, I just realized like how not good my question sounded. So sorry for that one. Uh, but the let me try to rephrase that question. And I want to put it in the way that basically if a US-based company wants to expand to Asian markets, what's the best way to do that? Is it through angel investors here who are both working in the US and in Asia? Is it through corporate venture capital? Is it through venture capitals? What's basically the best way to expand to Asian markets specifically from the United States? Well, I mean, to, to kind of put it another way, I don't think that, I don't think an early stage startup should be saying we want to go to Asia unless there's some specific pool, right? So if you're a, uh, if you're, a, you know, a, a kind of deeper tech, uh, deep tech company, then you know, that where, where you work very closely with large companies on like a technology partnership, um, then you probably want to go to Asia because um, some, you know, the Samsung has expressed interest in your, you know, semiconductor IP or something like that, right? And that's when um, you want to go. <clears throat> if you're, let's say, a consumer company or a SaaS company, um, you probably want to think about Asia if there's some organic pool, right? So if you're finding you don't have a presence out there, you haven't even localized to the language, um, but but um, there's consumers from Asia that are signing up, right? Then, then that's probably the, the best catalyst. <clears throat> um, as an example, right? So we, in one of my previous funds, we invested in an online learning platform. They didn't even have a local payments system set up. They didn't have, um, you know, localized languages, but they still had a bunch of people signing up from Asian countries, right? And so that's when, you know, from that company's perspective, you, you kind of prioritize your resources and think, okay, do we go international now and really set up an office there and localize? Um, and if so, which markets? Uh, you know, so to directly answer the question, I think without that kind of pool, um, just to kind of blindly say, let's let's go to Asia, I think is is pretty risky for an early stage startup. Um, and so when you do have that pool, then there's more, there's a broader array of um, people that you can lean on, whether they're resellers or whether they're, you know, strategic partners in, um, in Asia or any other markets. So you don't necessarily need the investors, but if you do have that, uh, if you do have an investor that does have expertise in that market or in, you know, international markets, they can help you think through which markets to prioritize and the timing. Right, right. So uh, my next question was, at which stage should founders start, you know, thinking of going globally or going specifically to Asia? But I think you kind of answered that. So my next question would be, how should they prepare for that? So let's say I'm somewhat early stage startup. I start getting some, you know, customers from Asia. And I know that I should go there someday. How should I start preparing for that if I don't really, I'm not ready to go there now, but I know that in a year, I'll be in Asia. I mean, my company will be in Asia. Yeah, and so so kind of re re um, referencing that online learning company, I think you focus on your home market or your major market, 
Um, if the product is great, if the you know if it's a two-sided market, if you have the supply, then um, then organically you'll get interest internationally, right? So I I don't think it's necessarily, especially for early stage startups, really kind of proactively preparing. It's more really kind of um, you know perfect the product, uh, make your home market customers happy, and then the rest will follow. Um, so there's, because it's, it's just such a huge endeavor to try to prepare in advance for, you know, to go into Korea, for example, right? Like there's different payment systems there. You have to localize the language. There's many different nuances. And so, yeah, I wouldn't really recommend preparing too far in advance. And I kind of let your customers dictate um, where you want to focus on next. Right, right. That's that's good advice. I think you know, don't spread yourself too thin. That killed multiple companies. So be careful with that. Um, my next question will be about fundraising now. So during the coronavirus, you mentioned that you know you spent quite a while you know thinking about how uh, your investment thesis changed. And what's your advice to early stage founders now trying to raise money? Yeah. Um... So there's, you know, there's a lot of talk about VC activity being high right now, um, but I think there's a bifurcation of kind of like Silicon Valley insiders or, you know, startup world insiders being able to raise versus founders without as strong of a network or entrepreneurial track record. Um, they're finding it tougher, right? Because it's just hard to, the network is hard to just kind of plop yourself down in San Francisco and, and you know, try to meet as many folks as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> And so I think uh, just overall, right? So it's not, I think, I, I think it's still a tough environment to, to raise capital. Um, so I think, you know, from that sense, it's important kind of, as I mentioned, mentioned before, to get organized um, and create an enterprise sales type process um, in, in doing investor outreach. Um, I think it's, important not to optimize on valuation and kind of let the market dictate the price. Um, and then I think like, it's important not to take things personally, right? So like an anecdotal experience, right? <clears throat> on, the, on the other side of the table, I've pitched um, probably hundreds of limited partners to invest in my previous funds, right? And, and many times, to be honest, I take it personally when I was turned down. Um, but now, so, so, you know, D20 has invested in a couple of funds. So being on the other side of the table, um, I quickly realized that LPs see tons and tons of different funds and invest in mm-hmm. a couple of new ones a year. So then if you stack rank, stack rank them, um, it's hard to make a case that you know, the funds that I was a part of in the past were the absolute best, right? So likewise, VCs meet probably over a thousand companies a year, right? Um, yeah. And so you as a startup founder and your business will be the right fit for someone, uh, but not for all and maybe not for many, right? So I think it's it's important to, you know, not take it personally, kind of take any feedback that you get. You know, sometimes the feedback will be very helpful and sometimes kind of be BS. Um, take that and, you know, if, if you've developed a relationship with uh, the VCs, even if they pass, you know, try to ask for, other intros, if, if somebody says, oh, you know, it's too early, um, then maybe ask, like, oh, do you know any kind of earlier stage investors that this might be a bit for? And it's, you, 
probably won't always get like a very good, uh, you know, meaningful intros, but you might get some. And, and those are kind of going back to that enterprise sales process that, you know, those intros are kind of fill the, fill the top of the funnel again. Um, so it's mm-hmm. just kind of the process that you need to go down. Right, absolutely. And that's the advice in terms of, you know, asking for more intros is great. You never know who you're going to run into. Sometimes you get completely useless people, but sometimes you just get golden nuggets out of nowhere. It happened to me multiple times. And I'm like, wait, what? How did this even happen? And the answer is you just, I just kept asking for that. Uh, So let's move on to the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. What's the one thing that you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? Yeah, so I guess this is fundraising radio. Uh, assuming that if the listener is fundraising or, or considering fundraising in the you know in the near term, I think you know I, I know it's kind of a broken record at this point, but just getting organized, treating it as a um, you know very organized sales process. Use a CRM tool if if you have one, or you know a very organized spreadsheet can work as well. <clears throat> and then. Um, and then you know try to get try to fill the top of that funnel. Um, so with investor outreach, uh, warm intros are always recommended. Uh, but also you know completely recognize that not everybody has um, has those connections to make those warm intros, right? So I think you know don't be afraid to cold email. Um, and once again, you know don't take it personally if if the investor is still on the screen, but like it's it's worth a shot. But just make sure that those cold emails are thoughtful. Kind of personalized message. Um, a lot of times, like I just get uh, what's very obviously kind of a mail merge or uh, just you know random ads on LinkedIn, and so that's not really that's not really uh, creating a, a high chance for you. So I think just being thoughtful and, and personalizing the message and cold emails, we we try to at least respond to all of those. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you write a good, high quality, personalized email, the chances are really high that the person at least will say, like, uh, I'm sorry, it's not a good time for us right now. So, yeah, definitely do that. Put time into that. And as you said, don't take it personally. You know, stuff happens all the time. So we'll wrap it up here. Uh, My personal recommendation is go to the description of this episode. First of all, we have started our YouTube channel. So now fundraising radio is not audio only, but video as well. And I'll leave a link to D20, of course, so that you can take a look at the, at the website. And you know, if you think that you're a good fit, reach out to them. So have a great day, everyone, and check the description of the interview.